Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for watching us right here on ADH TV. Tell your family and friends where they can find us. Just search ADH on your Apple TV app store or the Google Play store and you can watch for free as thousands and thousands of people are finding out. It's very easy to do. Tonight on the show, we'll cross to our US correspondent, Peggy Grandy. Plenty happening over there, but seriously, how can Joe Biden go on? I see the polls today have him at a popularity of less than 30%. Clearly, he is cognitively incapable to such an extent that his perceived weaknesses are placing the free world at risk. On the global stage, he's not made a single dent. Domestically, he's losing bark by the day. The president will today welcome his Mexican counterpart to the White House, where it's reported tackling inflation is on the top of the agenda. What on earth would Joe Biden know about tackling inflation, other than the fact that his energy policy is a significant factor in the inflationary spiral? The bloke is economically illiterate. I would have thought the influx of illegal crossings on the southern US-Mexico border would be the priority, but clearly not. It is a mess, but which country isn't in a mess? Here we're facing an energy crisis. Brain dead, no homework politicians are blaming it on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is one of about 50 factors and not the main one. The main factor is that in this country, politicians for too long have demonised fossil fuels, egged on woke banks and corporations to not fund new projects, indeed have done everything they can to speed up the closure of coal-fired power stations. So here we are in the middle of winter. When Australian households want to turn on the heater, they're faced with the worry of blackouts due to power shortages and inevitably higher electricity prices. They're there now in the letterbox. Successive governments, federal and state, signed up to this nonsense years and years ago. This mess wasn't born overnight. The premature push to renewables subsidised by you, the taxpayer, this pie in the sky battery nonsense. Now a battery stores power, it doesn't generate it. And this green utopia of wind turbines in the paddocks. This is the recipe for an unreliable and costly energy grid. So I'll speak with Professor Ian Plymer about this. He's the author of a magnificent book, Green Murder, which outlines the disastrous impact of net zero policies and the risk they pose to our economic future. Why does it call it green murder? Because he argues the greenies are murdering human beings who are kept in eternal poverty without coal-fired electricity. They murder forests and wildlife with their bushfire policies. They murder economies with their energy policies, producing unemployment, hopelessness, the collapse of communities, disrupted social cohesion, and yes, sadly, even suicide. Professor Plymer's book, Green Murder, there it is, available now. Go to Connor Court, publishing.com.au and purchase your copy along with Peggy Grandy and Professor Plymer, I'll have something to say about an astonishing development affecting us with the World Health Organization, and don't expect government to tell you anything about it. And to my view, to my New Zealand viewers, some comments you'll be interested in on your Prime Minister and his, her challenger, Christopher Luxon, the new opposition leader. There's plenty coming up, so stay with me. And remember, you can have your say anytime, email me, and I'll answer you, Alan Jones, at ADH.TV. Alan Jones at ADH.TV. Look, while we're on this critical energy issue, and I don't apologise for continuing to raise it because this is a seminal moment in the history of the Australian economy, I can only tell you what I believe based on my experience and my reading. I've seen nothing from the government, or indeed the previous government, that could remotely justify cutting carbon dioxide emissions by 43%. Nor have I seen a single sentence which could be regarded as an objective business case outlining the consequences of such a policy. When, as I've said over and over again, we still receive well over 60% of our energy from coal-fired power stations. The only policy we have is the rhetorical rubbish 
that we will transition from fossil fuels to renewables and we'll give billions of dollars to the renewable industry to make it happen. I repeat what I've said before, an energy policy worth two bob can be summed up in one sentence, and this is it. Energy must be available, reliable and affordable. Renewable energy is none of these. Siemens Gamesa, whose headquarters are in Spain, it actually, by the way, supplies green energy to Macquarie Park in New South Wales. It's a leader in the renewable energy industry, purporting to provide the world's best offshore and onshore wind turbines and services. Ben Hunt is the former head of corporate affairs at Siemens Gamesa. In signing off from the company after three years, Ben Hunt wrote to colleagues that, and I quote, turbine manufacturers are in dire need of the bright future they were promised, unquote. In response to his comments on signing off from the company, remember this is an outfit which boasts an expertise in wind turbines. One comment received by Ben Hunt, the former head of corporate affairs at Siemens Gamesa said, quote, when I joined the company more than 15 years ago, I was told I was joining the sector with the brightest and most promising future. The problem is, it's a future that never seems to come, unquote. Ben Hunt, I repeat, the former head of corporate affairs, left the company and he said, quote, here is the paradox of the wind energy industry in 2022. If net zero and other decarbonisation targets are to be met, the industry should be on the cusp of a growth phase that would dwarf anything experienced so far. The question is whether the Western manufacturing sector will be in any sort of shape to deliver that growth, or will it endure the fate of the long lost solar industry, a spectre now regularly raised by industry leaders, unquote. Remember, here's our Prime Minister and Energy Minister touting that we're going to be the world leader in renewable energy and there'll be jobs for everybody and cheaper electricity, but no evidence to support the argument. Listen to Ben Hunt, quote, the news is full of stories of layoffs, factory closures and eye-watering financial losses. Of course, this is why, this is me now, not him. This is why all these subsidies you see, all the rent seekers, they can't make it pay on its own. So Ben Hunt says, and the resources required for the necessary investments are in jeopardy. Ben Hunt further argues, quote, the climate crisis hasn't gone away. As I write, this much of Europe is being scorched in a brutal early summer heat wave, unquote. Now, sensing the scepticism around the world about whether renewables can do the job, Ben Hunt, I repeat, the former head of corporate affairs at Siemens Gamesa, who described themselves as experts in renewable energy, Ben Hunt virtually acknowledges that wind is not in the vanguard of the future. When he writes, quote, the case for wind and renewables needs to be more forceful and more focused, unquote. I think the experience in Germany, where Merkel went all out for renewables, has shown the world that a future based on renewable energy is on what we know and on what we have seen an illusion, virtually confirming that all this so-called modelling is non-existent that we're witnessing a blind ideological push to wind and solar without the evidence to justify the case. Writes Ben Hunt, quote, to reap the rewards, the industry needs an economic model that works. So far, we've been working on models that don't work. He then says this, it's far from clear that bringing to market a new and bigger turbine every 18 months is not compatible with that goal unquote, which is the reason for the letter Ben Hunt received, which said, and I repeat, when I joined more than 15 years ago, that's joined this renewable energy outfit, I was told I was joining the sector with the brightest and most promising future. The problem is it's a future that never seems to come, unquote. But that's the future that's being thrust upon us with no debate and no business model. Ben Hunt, the former head of corporate affairs at this renewable energy outfit, Siemens Gamesa, wrote this, it's time to reconsider this unaffordable arms race. The distribution of value is not currently working and a new settlement is needed, unquote. Proving that this renewable energy future that's being dumped upon us is not here, nor is it in sight. Ben Hunt writes, quote, it's time to find a path that is less eventful and provides a more consistent 
and predictable way forward to the bright future my colleague, colleague has been in search of for far too long, unquote. Well, our Prime Minister and Chris Bowen can make all the speeches that they like. We're being led into an energy dead end. But the greatest tragedy is we've got thousands of years of energy resources under our feet so that we would be able to have a splendid economic future with the cheapest energy in the world. And government is forcing us to turn our backs on that. Well, I make this point because it's going to come sooner than later. The electorate will make it clear to government that that is something we won't cop. Well, look, I've just made the point that we are facing the economic and energy crossroads as the new government without media or coalition opposition barges headfirst into legislating for a 43% renewable energy target. As I said, I've seen nothing from the government or indeed the previous government that demonstrates what this means to consumers and business and what the costs and benefits might be. And when we talk about consequences, we still receive well over 60% of our energy from coal-fired power stations. Professor Ian Plymer is Australia's best-known geologist. He's the Emeritus Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, where he was for 14 years the Professor and Head of Earth Sciences. He was the Professor of Mining Geology at the University of Adelaide for six years. And in 1991, he was the German Research Foundation Professor of Ore Deposits at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität München in Germany. He's published more than 120 scientific papers. I make all these points because this is one of the many people of knowledge to whom government won't listen. Because he takes a contrary view to this whole climate change hysteria, Professor Plymer is rarely given a voice. I remember interviewing Barack Obama's former chief scientist, Steve Coonan. He wrote a book last year titled Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. He told me that virtually no one in America was prepared to interview him. Because in the book he wrote, this is the former chief scientist of the Democrat, Barack Obama, Steve Coonan argued, quote, Leaders talk about existential threat, climate emergency, disaster, crisis. But in fact, when you actually read the literature, he said, there is no support for that kind of hysteria. The science is insufficient to make useful projections about how the climate will change in coming decades, much less what effect human beings will have on it, unquote. Well, he's not the only person dismayed by climate alarmism. Professor Plymer has written a magnificent text called Green Murder. And he joins me. Ian Plymer, thank you for your time. Just tell our viewers why you've called it Green Murder. Well, I've called it Green Murder because green policies end up killing people. And we're seeing that currently in the UK, in Europe, we saw it in Texas when there was a great wind drought, no power, and more than 200 people died. We see it if you want to morally try to claim that you're superior and drive an electric vehicle. You don't seem to want to know that the cobalt for that vehicle comes from black children who work as slave labourers in the Congo. And that cobalt they produce goes to Chinese buyers. Now, the Green Movement wants to take the high moral ground. And I'm arguing in Green Murder that there is no high moral ground for them to take. They kill wildlife with their bird and bat munching uh, uh, turbines. They sterilise agricultural land with their solar panels. They dispose of this material by burying it. It leaches into the water table, puts horrible toxins there. Green politics ends up killing people, impoverishing people, and we're seeing that exactly now in Europe. Yes, of course. We have in the, the other UK murder last winter. The, sorry, yeah. Ian. The other murder, which I do want you to mention, and you make this in your book, they murder free speech and freedom, take over the education system, murdering the intellectual and economic future of young people. Well, it's worse than that. There's been a takeover of the education system. It's taken 40 or 50 years to do it. Young children now have no knowledge. They don't have the ability to critically or analytically think, and they don't ask the very simple question. And the question is, can you please show me 
that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. It's never been shown in the scientific literature. I've asked scientists, I've asked former chief scientists, politicians and journalists, just please just give me half a dozen scientific papers that prove that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. That's never been done. Yet the whole industry of robbing us blind with wind and solar and subsidies and then ending up with the inevitable food shortages, that is based on a false promise. Mm. So I fear the young people because they don't have now the ability to say, wait a minute, folks, this is not in accord with some science. It's not in accord with history. Mm. Professor Plymer, we once had, simple question, reliable, cheap electricity. What's gone wrong? Well, we uh, went to renewable energies, which are unreliable and are expensive and are subsidised. And renewable energy doesn't run on the wind or on the sun. It runs on subsidies. In Australia, we had very cheap energy. It was coal-fired. The generators were close to the heavy industry that used this power, such as smelters. And we have totally re-engineered and broken down this system. It's not been done by electrical engineers. It's been done by ideologues. It's been done for political reasons. And I don't have a problem with people having a different view. But once that view gets put into practice, you have to demonstrate that we are better off with your policy than the former policies. I see absolutely no gain that's happened for the average person in the Western world over the last 25 years with green energy. Mm. I've spoken to endless politicians. None of them, none of them could tell me what the percentage is of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which apparently is sort of affecting us and sending us to the end of the world. Anthony Albanese has made a major speech today on climate change, saying we have a once in a lifetime chance to become a renewable energy superpower by transforming, his words, the country's old coal dominated electricity grid, helping its regional allies to shift to net zero emissions and tapping booming green investments. Do you have one word to describe that? Codswallop. We have a once in a lifetime opportunity to go down the path of Argentina or Venezuela, and we're well down that path. Australia is already at net zero. When we look at the amount of carbon dioxide that's absorbed by our grasslands, our forests and our crops, it's about five times as much as we emit. And then we put the two and a half million square kilometres of continental shelf into that, that absorbs a huge amount of carbon dioxide, and we are absorbing about 10 times as much as we emit. We should go to Paris and say, I want countries like Chad and Morocco, landlocked poor countries to pay up. We need your money because we are doing our bit. Mm -hmm. So we are being fed absolute lies. Very few people are prepared to call it. You mentioned about Steve Coonan. I don't get in interviewed by government uh, media. I don't get interviewed by... Uh, mainstream media at all. That's they it. don't read my book. No. They don't need to read anything. No. They know it all. They know it all. Has it ever been shown that emissions of carbon dioxide, which of course is the source of all plant life, the, you call it the gas of life, has it ever been shown that carbon dioxide drives global warming or climate change? No, it's never been shown. And I've asked that question for more than 20 years. And if you could show it, then you would have to answer the next question. And that is, well, if human emissions drive global warming, why don't the natural emissions, which are 97% of the total, why don't they uh, drive global warming also? Just stop How there. Stop. Just stop. Ian Plymer. Ian Plymer, stop. I want you to say that again. I read that in the book, and I think it's a really significant point that you make. Start it again. If the 3%, away you go. If the 3% of human emissions drive global warming, you must show that the 97% of natural emissions don't. Game, set and match. Carbon dioxide doesn't care whether it's come from humans no. or whether it's uh, been no. degassed from the oceans. It is carbon dioxide, molecular weight 42, 44. But see, Ian Plymer, everything is on that side, the renewable side, is subsidies. Now they want to subsidise hydrogen, they want to subsidise electric vehicles, subsidise batteries. I mean, haven't we just seen the failure of these policies in Europe? 
they've absolutely totally failed. And to paraphrase Margaret Thatcher, um, we're ultimately going to run out of someone else's money. At present, we are a very wealthy country in Australia. We haven't had a recession for a long time. Most people under 50 have never had high interest rates. I can remember when they were 17.9 and we were trying to buy a place in Newcastle. It was difficult with a wife and three children. It wasn't easy. Most people haven't had that experience. Most people haven't lived in hyperinflation. Most people haven't experienced a recession. The world just goes on. We've just got so much money and we can take money from here and there for whatever cause you want. But we've got thousands of years of raw materials under our feet. Why are we heading for this self-sabotage of the national economy? We are too wealthy. We are too ill-educated. We have politicians who really um, don't rise to the top of the pile. You see with a flock of sheep, the smartest one leads the flock. In this country, the dumbest politician leads the flock. Excellent. We need more engineers, practical people, scientists in politics, not people who want to tie knots in the law and fleece everyone alive. But Ian, we are I've, heading down the Venezuela path. Yeah, quite. Ian, what is to happen, what's happening now, when banks go woke, our businesses woke, but banks won't lend to a business that might want to build a high-efficiency, low-emission, coal-fired power station. What happens? Ultimately, I think we have to suffer a recession or extreme financial hardship before the electorate will say, well, wait a minute, we've gone down the wrong path here. Let us go back and think about how we got here and what we've done, and that will force the banks. The banks have shareholders. The banks are now run by people who have been educated by in our dumbed-down system, mm. and these people seem to think that they can change the world. Well, mm. banks have shareholders, mm. and the shareholders ultimately will say, no, that's not the way to go. Well, but just, it will take a lot of time before we get there. Just one final point. We always run out of time, but we've got to talk to you more often. If you make this point in the book, if Albanese and Bowen, say, were concerned about their fellow human beings, wouldn't they support cheap reliable, 24-7, fossil fuel and nuclear-generated electricity. Alan, you're showing what a dinosaur you are. (laughs) That was the Labor Party of past years. Mm. The Labor Party uh, in past times were concerned about the welfare of people. I'm in a town that's been a union town for 100 years. Uh, That town was concerned about people. The modern Labor Party is concerned about power, being part of the elite, strutting around the world in jets that we pay for and showing how they are just that 0.1% of society who we fund from our taxes. Wonderful. You're outstanding. Good to talk to you, Ian. We'll talk again too. Thank you, It's a wonderful book. Look, it's Professor Ian Plyman. Now, the book is called Green Murder. You can order that now by just going to Connor Court Publishing. Connor, there it is on your screen, connorcourtpublishing.com.au. You've got to read this. It should be the text for the nation. should be in all schools, connorcourtpublishing.com.au. Professor Ian Plymer and Green Murder. Look, just following up a couple of stories we covered last night, of course, there is the Kyrgios story, and today we learn of the athletes' after-party. Nick Kyrgios is no doubt a crowd favourite with a certain generation, especially the young people, but not only the young. We learned today that not long after the Wimbledon final ended and his fortnight of dreams was over, photos were apparently sent home of the father holding giant bottles, plural, of Belvedere, that is vodka, inside a Mayfair nightclub. And the caption under the picture said, quote, Nick Kyrgios relaxes with a drink or three, unquote. Now, look, I'm not a wowser and I'm all for people enjoying themselves whether they win or lose. But young people in particular imitate their heroes, and Nick Kyrgios is one of their heroes. One can only wonder at the behavioural problems that might be experienced by young people if they believe it's okay to celebrate anything with giant bottles of vodka. Now, to be fair to Nick, he didn't take the photos or write the stories. But many young people are part of a very troubled generation. Drugs and alcohol are part of the trouble. I think they need heroes who say, by all means, enjoy yourself, but steer clear of drugs and excess. 
And I think it's fair to say that giant bottles of vodka are certainly excess. In relation to tennis history, by the way, the big three of men's tennis, this is astonishing, Djokovic, Nadal and Roger Federer have won 63 Grand Slam titles. The Australian, the French, Wimbledon and the US Open. 63 of them, amongst three of them. Well, yesterday I also mentioned the worldwide eulogies being paid to the slain former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He was campaigning, as you know, for the upper house elections and seeking support for his Liberal Democratic Party. His assassination was on Friday. The vote was on Saturday. And his party, the Liberal Democrats, are on track to secure a bigger majority than expected in the upper house elections. It'll be interesting to see whether his party honours Abe's role in Japanese politics by securing the constitutional change that Abe passionately wanted, but could never achieve, revising the pacifist constitution of Japan and nudging Japan to a level of independence from the United States. Now, even though Abe, as I told you last night, led his party to commanding victories in national elections, he was never able to push through constitutional change. Well, now his party faces no obstacles in either chamber, the lower house or the upper house. Will his party now embrace that constitutional change? I guess it's a wait and see proposition. Well, closer to home, we've seen whinging from the teals that their staff numbers have been quote unquote slashed by Anthony Albanese from four advisers to one. That is not the case. They automatically have four staff members, but Turnbull, in order to cozy up to the Greens, gave the crossbenchers, that is those who are not coalition or Labor, four extra staff, total eight. Beyond ridiculous. Anthony Albanese has said, you'll get one, which means their total staff quotient will be five. Plenty. More than every other backbencher. And I was staggered to learn that the Teal senior advisers, that is the one extra staff member that Anthony Albanese has allocated, will be entitled to, you ready? A private plated vehicle, business class airfares, and higher travel allowance rates so that they can stay in better hotels. The reality is that in Canberra, we nearly have three times the army of personal staff, three times more personal staff than there are elected officials. And these highly paid advisors earn close to a backbench salary of $217,000. By the way, a backbencher is on about $250,000. Can you tell me one who earns it? But they love getting their noses in the trough, don't they? It hasn't taken the teal ACT senator and former Australian rugby captain David Pocock too long to get on the gravy train. He's whinging about losing three staffing positions, which I've explained above. And he's talking about workloads. I beg your pardon. He's a senator for the ACT, an electorate as big as a pocket handkerchief. It's got three members of parliament, two senators, and an entire territory government with a population of 430,000. Matt Canavan would leave any of these people for dead. He writes his own speeches. Some politician should try that. He's got fewer staff than people like David Pocock. Anthony Albanese has shown common sense and guts in reducing the number of political advisers. But above all, he's shown some belated respect for taxpayers' money. We've got a trillion dollars of debt. The Labor government didn't create it, but they've got to solve it. Reducing bloated staff members is a start. Now, let's go to Peggy Grandy, whom our viewers love. She is, as you know, the former executive assistant to the former Republican president, Ronald Reagan. She speaks to us each week on contemporary issues in America and sadly to say, what a mess they're in. Peggy, thank you for your time again. Look, I don't want to revisit with you today this Roe v. Wade issue other than to say to you and seek your view. I was reading a piece recently, very recently, in The New York Times, which said, and I quote, it was a new era in Washington in 1981, and abortion rights activists were terrified. With an anti-abortion President Ronald Reagan in power and Republicans controlling the Senate for the first time in decades, social conservatives, this is the article in the New York Times, pushed for a constitutional amendment to allow individual states to overturn Roe v. Wade, 
the Supreme Court ruling, by the way, that's where we are now, individual states, to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling that had made abortion legal nationwide several years earlier. And here's the crunch to the story. The amendment, which the National Abortion Rights Action League called the most devastating attack yet on abortion rights, cleared a key hurdle in the Senate Judiciary Committee in March 1982. Support came not only from Republicans, but from a 39-year-old second-term Democrat, Joseph R. Biden. Peggy, Biden was supporting the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's hard to believe, isn't it? And thank you, Alan, for having me on. You know, there's one thing can, um, Joe Biden is consistent with, and it's being inconsistent. And there's one thing you can rely on him for is to be unreliable. He has flip-flopped on so many of the policies that he's advocated for or against over the years. And keep in mind, this is somebody who claims to be a devout Catholic, but is so far removed from the Catholic Church on this decision with his advocacy now um, so extreme in pushing for abortion that many places of the Catholic Church have actually banned him from taking Holy Communion. And, you know, back in the 1980s, maybe you could be a pro-life Democrat and maybe you could be a pro-choice Republican, but those days have come and gone. And so Joe Biden was not alone in the Senate at that time in being pro-life. Yeah, and I mean, um, sadly, yeah. those days are no longer here. Just for our viewers, I mean, Biden entered the Senate in 1973 as a 30-year-old practicing Catholic. He concluded that the Supreme Court went too far, unquote, on abortion rights in the Roe case. He told an interviewer the following year, 1974, that a woman, this is Joe Biden, think about his stance now, running around America, saying this is the most disgraceful thing that the Supreme Court have done to overturn Roe v. Wade. 1974, Biden said a woman shouldn't have, shouldn't have the sole right to say what should happen to her body. But Peggy, by the time he left the vice presidential mansion in early 2017, he was a 74-year-old arguing a different view. That government, he said, doesn't have a right to tell other people that women can't control their body. What does this bloke stand for? Well, as a Catholic, I think he's been converted not to Catholicism, but to the progressive left. He's become a pawn for them. And the further down this path he goes, the more he realizes it's a slippery slope. He will never appease the far left extremists. And the further left he goes, the more out of touch he gets with the American people, because the American people are not for extreme late term abortion that he is for. And especially when it comes to federal funding, he is on the wrong side of this argument and he is losing supporters, even those who may support abortion, are highly against some of these extreme measures. Mm. In 1991, the same bloke was chairman of the Senate committee, basically hearing the issue about Clarence Thomas becoming a Supreme Court judge. And Anita Hill had made claims against Thomas about sexual harassment. So this is the man today, he's very pro-women, really supportive of women. women. He was the chairman of the Senate committee, Peggy, and he didn't want to believe Anita Hill and her claims that she'd been sexually harassed. But apparently now, President Biden has avoided answering any questions on a specific policy he once supported. If he were a Republican, he wouldn't get away with this, would he? Of course he wouldn't. We know there's a double standard. And, you know, the left always says we should believe all women unless there's a woman who's accusing somebody on the left of doing something wrong. And so we all see the, through the hypocrisy of this. And, you know, that was an interesting time back um, when Anita Hill was at the confirmation hearing. And really, when you look at even back then, the American people were not believing of her testimony. And so mm. Clarence Thomas still sits on the Supreme Absolutely. Court because of Joe That's Biden actually managing that committee. Let's go to Texas. What weight can be attached to the Republican call in Texas to place Texas independence on the 2023 general election ballot, ultimately calling for a statewide vote for Texas returning to an independent nation? Uh, what's the status of this, do you think, Peggy? 
Well, the state of Texas, a lot of their legislators have voted in favor of it. And you know, there's a lot of Texans who actually agree with this. It's not going to happen because it can only legally happen through either revolution or when all the other states voted out. And if all the states are going to vote a state out of the union, it's certainly going to be California first, not Texas. But what Texas is trying to do is to make a point. And they have been trying to do this in a lot of different ways. They are claiming that the federal government has been derelict in their duty to secure the border. And I would agree with that assessment. And so they've tried things like building the wall on federal land. They've tried taking immigrants who have come illegally into Texas and putting them on buses and sending them to Washington, D.C. or to Delaware. And so they're trying to take matters into their own hands by claiming it's an invasion. And then the federal government has to respond. But they're just trying to force the government to make a response to protect the borders and to secure, yeah. secure Texas. Yeah. But I actually think beyond making a point, the most important point of this is they're galvanizing the the voters. The voters are seeing that the people of Texas are willing to take on the federal government to provide safety and security to those border communities, Absolutely. and they're doing it. And of course, this was the job Biden gave to Kamala Harris, and she too has been as big a disaster as Biden. Let's go to this other issue of China. You and I have talked about Biden raiding the strategic petroleum reserves to solve the American energy crisis. I think we mentioned last week, five million barrels of oil reserves have got overseas while, America's, while Americans suffer at home. Peggy, how big an issue is this? I mean, what are the American people saying about the report that 950,000 barrels of the oil evidently went to a communist Chinese state-owned oil and gas company with ties to Hunter Biden? I mean, it's been Donald Trump. The whole world would be on fire. Of course. Well, none of this is new and none of it is news because everybody knows that Hunter Biden was compromised by China. Everybody knows that the big guy, Joe Biden, was getting kickbacks. And everybody knows that this is not an America first policy. They're endangering America because they're making people wonder, is Joe Biden compromised? What do the Chinese know? And how how is he yeah. affiliating with yeah. them in a way that is causing him yeah. to make decisions? What was the decision making on the release of the strategic oil reserve? And can we trace the origins of it? Did it go through natural process and procedure? And if not, we need to know why. He's uh, endangered us all. This is not a good decision and he needs to answer for it. I mean, the American public believed that raiding the petroleum reserves, which was wrong in the first place, that's what they are, reserves, was intended to lower gas prices at the pump for Americans. And Biden said it would, quote, address the pain Americans are feeling at the pump and fight back against, quote, Putin's price hike. But nearly one million barrels have gone to a Chinese state-owned outfit, Sinopec, a company entirely owned by the Chinese Communist Party. And reports say that Hunter Biden's equity firm has reportedly purchased a $2 billion stake in Sinopec in 2015. What coverage is this getting in America? Well, not enough, because if people knew the truth and knew the facts, they would be not only concerned, but they would be outraged because the pain that we're feeling at the pump is not Putin's fault. It's not COVID's fault. It's Joe Biden's fault. Yes. And the American people know that. Joe Biden and his administration can try to spin this and explain this and blame this away, but the American people know better. And let's remember that this was the same group of people that without evidence accused Trump of being an agent of China. And now there's overwhelming evidence that Joe Biden actually does have to ties to China along with his son, and nobody's reporting on it. Absolutely. Americans are paying more than $5 a gallon at the pump while the president's son is invested in a company that's buying America's strategic reserves. Didn't we have an impeachment hearing about a phone call between Donald Trump and President Zelensky? Do the self-righteous now believe some questions should be asked in Congress as to how the Biden family may well be profiting while American people are suffering? Well, Congress absolutely should be looking into this and the American people should be demanding that Congress does. We need answers. Why was this decision made? Is Joe Biden compromised? And if so, he's making us very dangerous. There's no scenario under which they could look at the facts, look at the evidence, look what's happening in the U.S. and the pain of the American people and decide that the best use of this oil would be to give it to China. 
There's no equation that adds up to that. I know. And you made the point before, all of this problem is of Biden's making. In a debate with the fellow Democrat, Bernie Sanders, and you know I'd mentioned this before, but it's worth saying it again, running for president in 2020, Biden said, no more drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Now he's releasing petroleum reserves to the rest of the world. Is Biden going to get away with this? Well, nobody wants to cover it because they don't want to have to take action. But it even gets worse than that. Joe Biden is blaming the consumers that were using too much gas, or he's blaming the gas station owners saying you're just charging too much. He knows nothing about supply and demand. He knows nothing about basic economics, clearly has never run even a small business and should not be running the United States of America. Absolutely. Uh, the New York Republican congressman, I mentioned this to our viewers, Andre Gavarino, observed by dishing it up to Biden, he said, in November 2020, a barrel of oil was $43 a month. Before Putin invaded Ukraine, before Putin invaded Ukraine, it was $87. I think we know the, who's, cause, who's causing all the problems, don't we? Out of time always, Peggy, which is, we're very unfortunate about that, but lovely, lovely to have your insights. Keep well, you're looking splendid. See you next week. We're matching, we're matching. I knew Thank you were going to dress like that. I thought I'd put the tie on and, you know, fit the bill. We <laughs> <laughs> match, I love it. Thank all right, you, Alan. <laughs> all right, Peggy, see you next week. There she is, Peggy Grandy. Wonderful insights into see America. <laughs> Look, it's almost impossible, I think, to keep tabs on the extent to which the cherished values of the past are being irrevocably erased. We now know, for example, that the freedoms that men and women of the past fought and died for are either being eroded or have been eroded. And the most conspicuous, of course, is freedom of speech. I challenge anyone to tell me that they are not frightened to say what they think when what they're thinking doesn't fit the woke or politically correct formula. Have you noticed the disappearance of constructive debate? In Ukraine, President Zelensky is fighting for the nation's sovereignty. Where is our nation's sovereignty when important assets and infrastructure are sold to foreign entities. Does it matter who runs the country if we don't own its important assets, like, for example, the Port of Darwin? On climate change, no one is prepared to debate the merits or otherwise of carbon dioxide, nor can they tell us what percentage is in the atmosphere. In 2019, I was on the ABC program Q&A on this very issue. There was a star-studded panel, including the now treasurer, Jim Chalmers. As proof that the climate cult doesn't want to hear actual numbers, listen to this exchange which occurred between me and the lady next to be on the panel, the talented journalist Alice Workman. Oh my when I asked... Well, just a moment, Alice, you've been speaking for most of the night. When I... When, when I... When I asked Tanya Plibersek... We'll fact-check that one for you. Yes. When I asked Tanya Plibersek, was the deputy leader of the Labor Party and the potential deputy prime minister, was carbon dioxide the big issue in relation to climate change? And she said yes. I then said, well, that being the case, what percentage of the atmosphere is made up of carbon dioxide? And she said, I don't know. And I said, hang on, you don't know what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and yet you're prepared to stand the economy on its head to address a problem, the detail of which you don't know. So when I then explained that the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, Alice, is how much? Alice, how much of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? To answer Alice? the question, Scott Morrison has said he believes in climate much? change Alice, and that much? he wants to do something about Alice, it. Alice, how much carbon dioxide is the problem? How much carbon dioxide is there in the atmosphere? I'm not a scientist. I don't oh. know. I'm a well, hang on. If you're going to argue the case, you ought to know. It's 0.04 of a percent. And of that 0.04 of a percent, human beings around the world create 3%. And of that 3%, Australia creates 1.3%. So for the 1.3% of 3% of 0.04%, we then decide to have a national economic suicide. Alan, now, Alan, you're Alan, going Alan, to... Alan, I'm, I'm happy Please, for you to have made that point, which... You see, no-one was prepared to debate the figures, and they didn't know them. Indeed, as you saw, the debate was chopped off. But the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change rules our lives, in spite of their endless contradictions. Well, now, consider this. The World Health Assembly, in the wake of the pandemic, held a special session on December 1 last year. It was entitled, The World Health Together. 
The World Health Assembly is the decision-making body of WHO, the World Health Organization, and it's attended by delegations from all member states. We are a member. But this special session was only, quote, the second ever since WHO, the World Health Organization, was founded in 1948. But the participants agreed to, quote, draft and negotiate a convention, agreement, or other international instrument under the constitution of the World Health Organization to strengthen pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, unquote. This would come to be known, we were told, as the Pandemic Treaty, which was the main focus of discussion at the 75th World Health Assembly in Geneva last May, a couple of months ago. Now, according to the first Director General of WHO, the lefty, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who's not a medical doctor, the treaty represents, quote, an opportunity to strengthen the global health architecture to protect and promote the well-being of all people. Well, I see they're there to look after us. This so-called pandemic treaty is now subject to a progress report next year with a view to it being implemented for all 194 member countries, that's us, by 2024. First point. Have you ever heard anyone in our national government, before or now, tell the voter about this? Where has there been debate in the national parliament? Not a syllable about this in the Hansard. Yet this agreement will grant the World Health Organization the power to declare a pandemic based on its own vaguely defined criteria in any of its 194 member countries at any point in the future. That's us. The treaty will permit the World Health Organization to unilaterally determine what measures will be imposed in response to these future declared pandemics, including lockdown policies, mandatory masking, social distancing, coercing the population into undergoing medical treatment and vaccination. That won't be decided by our government, but by WHO. And you see, the WHO World Health Organization is not an independent, unbiased or ethical organization aiming to achieve the common good, its goals and genders are reportedly set by its donors, including some of the world's richest countries and most influential philanthropists. Now, common sense will tell you that when philanthropists and foundations advance their interests, they do so at the expense of the common interests of us. As one report has argued, the pandemic treaty has the potential, quote, to be extremely detrimental to the future of humanity because it will allow the WHO's most powerful contributors to shape universal pandemic measures instead of recognising the importance of developing specific policies and approaches based on the social, economic and physical realities and needs of each individual country. It said the treaty will eliminate the national will and the sovereignty of member countries as it will dictate their health policies. The pandemic treaty will not allow individuals to rely on their own physical, spiritual and intellectual faculties in order to achieve their own well-being, unquote. So in terms of freedom, civil liberties, gone, economic freedom, gone, the freedom to do something about your health or not do something, gone. And once these freedoms are stifled, the foundations of progress and advancement vanish. Well, Mark Butler, you are the new Minister for Health. Tell us what you know about all of this. I suspect nothing. Well, before we go, amidst all the gushing and media hype surrounding the New Zealand Prime Minister's visit to Australia, some strange things came about. Many politicians, it appears, were love-struck. One of them was the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. With a spring in his step, he took Jacinta Ardern in with open arms, showing her the New South Wales Parliament House, uploading photos with her on his social media page and having one-on-one -on -one meetings. Premier, give us a break, will you? The New South Wales Liberals prancing around with Ardern, the once president of the International Union of Socialist Youth, and the Liberals wonder why they're in trouble. This is Matt Keane-inspired behaviour. But the strangest revelation was when Anthony Albanese signalled New Zealanders could be given voting rights. He then said his government would take a more common-sense approach to the relationship with New Zealand, as if to say past governments had it all wrong when it comes to our friends across the ditch. When I say all wrong, Ardern disliked how the coalition government and Peter Dutton deported New Zealand citizens convicted of crimes in Australia. 
I would have thought that's common sense. Is this federal Labor being weak on crime again? As I said yesterday, Prime Minister Albanese is now saying he'll ask Parliament's Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters to consider extending voting rights to New Zealand residents in Australia. This is globalist European Union stuff. You mean to say a New Zealand citizen should be able to vote in Australian elections? Albo, this doesn't pass the pub test. Or is this a good old Greens policy, wanting to lower the voting age to 16 because they know that those votes may go to them. As for Jacinda Ardern, her political opportunism is sickening. Only interested in woke virtue signalling, her political achievements are so small you'd need a microscope to find them. For example, Ardern cited child poverty as her reason for entering politics. Well, child poverty has increased under her prime ministership. She then wanted to solve New Zealand's housing crisis by building 100,000 homes over a decade. The program called Kiwi Build was scrapped after two years. Ardern then promised a light rail connection from Auckland's CBD to the airport. That was scrapped before it began. Ardern, all hat and no cattle. While announcing Dame Sydney Kiro as New Zealand's Governor-General, Ardern ridiculously said she believed the role would become redundant in her lifetime. This is not to mention her government's weak stance on China. The New Zealand Foreign Minister expressed her reluctance to sign a Five Eyes joint communique denouncing Beijing's suppression of liberty in Hong Kong, as well as its repression of the Uyghur Muslims. This followed a decision by Five Eyes, which includes Britain, the US, Australia, Canada and New Zealand, to go beyond security and intelligence sharing and to promote shared values on democracy and human rights. This seems to be all too hard for Ardern's New Zealand, but you see, China accounts for roughly 29% of New Zealand exports. So Ardern chooses revenue, revenue income, revenue stemming from trade over human rights. I think that tells you all you need to know about Jacinda Ardern and her woke left politics. Well, Ardern has a challenge coming her way with the new opposition leader in New Zealand, Christopher Luxon, amongst other things, He's made the point in the last 24 hours that New Zealand has become fearful, inward and negative as a result of its COVID settings and that Ardern owes expatriates an apology for locking them out during the pandemic. New Zealand at last with a viable opposition leader. Ardern may well be on the way out. If you are to believe the headlines, she seems to have more political friends in Australia than she has supporters in New Zealand. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you tomorrow night. Good night.